0: Welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station, wherever you happen to be living, or on podcast platforms, Harbinger Media Network. Today on The Green Majority, we have the hosts of the Pullback Podcast, Kyla Hewson and Kirsten Pugh, speaking with Stefan and Lauren as well as Professor David Camfield about geoengineering. But before that, we're just going to go to a 40-second announcement from Mr. Tim Nash of Good Investing. Hey, everyone. It's Tim Nash here, your friendly neighborhood sustainable economist. If you're in Toronto, I'm hosting my Good Investment Fair on Saturday, June 17th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at CSI Annex, 720 Bathurst Street, just south of Bloor. The good investment fair is like a farmer's market for community bonds that lets regular people like you and me invest with nonprofits and co-ops that are solving problems like affordable housing and climate change. You can earn a financial return while also having a positive impact in your own backyard. How does that sound? If you want to learn more, come by CSI Annex. That's 720 Bathurst Street on Saturday, June 17th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. I hope to see you there.
1: So let's get started uh, by talking about geoengineering. Basic question, just to start with: what is it? <laughs> Somebody want to take that one?
2: I mean, I feel like we have a professor on the on the
0: show. I feel like if anything, the professor should teach us something, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm not a professor of geoengineering. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, my my angle on it is more how it uh, plays out in society and and the politics of it, rather than the engineering side of it. I mean, it's a it's a broad term that gets used to refer to a bunch of different things. The kind that's most in discussion I think is uh, solar radiation management the whole idea of trying to inject sulfates into the high atmosphere to uh, block the effects of greenhouse gases
3: this is Lauren here the way I would explain it if it were if, if we were talking about this on the green majority and I were kind of just trying to give like an overarching explanation it's a variety of tools and mechanisms um, through which we would essentially attempt to manipulate the environment in order to either offset or hold off or postpone or reverse the effects of climate change. It's like, I, I, I was obviously in preparation for this conversation. We're like doing a little bit of reading up on it. And, and somebody somewhere, it might even have been like Time Magazine, essentially explained it as like, it's essentially trying to combat climate change with climate change.
4: I I have a question. How how is geoengineering different than maybe when we set up things like seaweed farms, and we know that seaweed like pulls in so much carbon out of the ocean, and it's like this is a really good thing for the environment to have. It's like these seaweed farms. I I'm like, oh, but that sounds like geoengineering, but it also sounds like a good one. So maybe they're different.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you can sort of like I, I I think geoengineering generally could be almost anything, right? It doesn't even necessarily have to be. The ways that we're talking about it now and we'll be talking about it because it's more so i think just about like the changing the earth's atmosphere overall um with sort of intentional engineering and so honestly i think you could probably count uh creating a bunch of seaweed farms as as geoengineering if you did it at, a, at a scale that would actually allow for at the worldwide i think the key here is geo which is like the whole world so like you're not just messing with one ecosystem but the entire world and that to me is that is like the key part of the, that part of it. And then the engineering part, of course, is like us taking action specifically to do things. And more often than not, I think we would think of the more synthetic solutions like sou- cloud seeding or, or the, the ships that, 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 that could spray up ocean stuff and brighten clouds and stuff like that. But I, I mean, I don't think there's anything stopping it from being like mass scale reforestation necessarily um, if it's done with the intention of changing the earth's atmosphere
1: yeah, it's just generally the case that geoengineering is more sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think from like
3: a definitional standpoint, it's like, like Stefan said, geoengineering is a really widely all-encompassing term, sort of the same way. I almost think of it as like akin to the way that like, technically, we have been genetically modifying organisms forever, like the fact that we have a zillion varieties of tomato or banana, and that is a result of us like selecting for specific. Genetic types over over the course of thousands of years. We've technically been genetically modifying organisms for forever. But when we refer to a genetically modified organism, we we tend to be referring to like what what Monsanto or Bayer is 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 doing with with an organism, as opposed to just like over the course of time changing what a banana looks like.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good point. Wonder if we can maybe talk a little bit. um, So we've already introduced this idea of solar geoengineering. um, So that's one major kind of geoengineering. The other kind is sort of like carbon dioxide removal. Can you folks give uh, some examples of each type maybe?
2: I mean, so the, yeah, those are the two, I think the most, the the ones that we're sort of furthest along thinking about. And I would say even carbon removal is probably significantly ahead of of solar radiation management. And then I'm sure there's other stuff that's like even further behind that is probably even more uh, out there, like uh, shooting, um, uh, mirrors into space which is definitely something i've heard of previously um but so there's has two main types of of carbon capture uh, are either direct air capture or carbon capture and storage carbon capture and storage are usually located on plants that create carbon so they were like on a coal plant or on other manufacturing plants and they catch they capture carbon at the source and then try to keep it underground it's the it's the one that the oil companies love the most because it lets them most believe that they are going to be okay and continue to sell stuff. Um, direct air capture is is slightly different because it is just pulling it from the air, which obviously is harder because there's less concentration of CO2. And so you need a lot more power and it takes a lot there's not as much CO2 in one spot, so it actually ends up being more expensive um, to do. But you can actually see that as much more of a sort of a long-term theoretical necessity at some point. It should not be used, obviously, to, to reduce stuff. And and a lot of the stuff that's on coal plants are, are being used currently as a reason to extend coal plant lives. But like, if you think about how we get from four fifty back down to three fifty, a part of this in a hundred years is almost certainly be in, going to be include some kind of direct air capture, just because it, it is going to be so hard to do that with any other options. Like it, as a part of a suite of things, still should not be uh, done more. And then then the solar radiation management is. The idea of instead of just re- getting at attacking the source, which would be removing these things like that, it is talking about reducing the heat from the sun. And so it's about uh, shooting particles in the atmosphere, sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere is one of the options, which hopefully reflects light or, or dims the sun a bit. Or this other one that's like cloud seeding basically from ships are the two that are the most commonly talked about right now. But I'm, I'm sure if you look, dug deeper, there's probably like another 50 kinds of weird schemes to reflect more light.
4: I mean, those sound like great ideas—capturing Ca- carbon at the source and burying it. I, I, I can see why the oil companies like the sound of that. David, do you wanna do you wanna comment?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's first of all there's there's technical problems. There are technical issues about how much actually gets captured and stored, and there are big claims made, and the actual efficiency is much less. And then. The way that this can be used to avoid actually transitioning off fossil fuels is a huge is a huge question, uh, and with direct air capture, I mean direct air capture is uh, you know in some ways more appealing than carbon capture and storage, uh, but there there's a question about. How would this work at the scale that would be required to actually pull that much carbon out? And where would you get the power to run this system from? Right, you have massive, you know, massive construction projects to actually build the direct air capture units that you would need to pull gigatons of carbon out. Uh, and then, what is it? You're going to run nuclear power plants? What? Where's the? If you're going to actually use uh, energy to to run this, wouldn't there be better ways to use that energy? Uh, you know, if you're going to use Renewables, solar, whatever it would be, you could think of a lot of things that might be might be better. Whether you know whether there may be some role for direct direct capture, you know something we could talk about. But I'm I'm much more concerned about the uh, carbon capture and storage because that's much more emphasized in the mainstream approaches right now to to the future of with climate change. There's a there are a lot of assumptions being made about uh, how much carbon capture and storage technology will be rolled out and how well it will work. That's built into the IPCC modeling, and so I think we have lots of reasons to be concerned about this and about the way it can be used to avoid actually reducing the emissions as the, the core task.
3: That was fantastic, David. But, um, but yeah, I think I would just want to emphasize that I think a lot of the concern, especially with something like when, when we're looking at like solar radiation management, injecting sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, for instance. One of the concerns there is that like, I'm going to get these numbers wrong. So the numbers I'm throwing out are 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 just random numbers. Say in order to offset the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere this year, or like, or like try to manage the warming from that. Say we had to put like, I don't know, 10 megatons of sulfur dioxide in the air in the year 2023. Um, given the rate at which we are projected to warm over the course of the next 100 years, or I guess wait, less than 100 years now, like like 75 years, um, by the time we hit the end of the century, the amount of sulfur dioxide we would have to inject into the atmosphere is just like a huge colossal amount in order to account for the amount of warming that would have accumulated by then were we not also intensely ramping down our our, our CO2 output. So the concern there is that it sort of puts you on this treadmill. And it's not only a treadmill that you're stuck on and that you can't get off of, because as soon as you stop injecting that sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, you immediately feel the effects of of that warming. But it's also, it's a treadmill that is increasing in uh, speed and increasing in height steadily over time. So so it's not even like you're on a treadmill and you just get to walk for the next 100 years. It's like you're you're going to have to start sprinting uphill really really fast. Um so it just sort of it 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 sets us up for this really awful feedback loop that's just going to exponentially build over time and 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 yes one could argue that that something like Solar radiation management gives us a bit of runway. But given what we know about the oil and gas industry and the ways in which continued CO2 emissions are like incentivized from a market standpoint, like we can't trust that we're actually going to use that runway. It's almost akin to like, I'm always trying to think of ways to like make it make sense for myself on a small scale. It's like, if I have credit card debt and the credit card company says to me, hey, Lauren, we see you're reaching your max in debt. What if we toss you another $5,000 on on your credit line? So all of a sudden, instead of having a $10,000 credit limit, I have a $15,000 credit limit. That doesn't actually guarantee that I'm gonna pay down my pre-existing debt. All it means is that I'm going to accumulate even more because you've given me more runway.
2: One last point on that, which I think is something that I can't get out of my head and I think it's important to note, is that the other big challenge with solar solar radiation management is that it only deals with the warming and i have not seen any conversation about the fact that that would also like what do we do that uh, our oceans are acidifying at an, a hugely alarming rate c- because of co2 uh, emissions there's no amount of solar radiation management that will stop our acidifying oceans and so You're going to hear a lot of pushes for this, I assume, in the next little bit around it being sort of like a climate justice issue because people are, you always have to compare, anyone who's advocating for this is going to keep saying, you have to compare what's happening now with what could be happening, what the problems that could be caused by this. We don't know what the problems are, but you know what the problems are now. But like, there are a lot of underlying questions there. And for me, the biggest one is it doesn't solve the whole problem, right? It's not... It's not going to stop this dividing oceans or all the other impacts of carbon in our atmosphere. And that is really dangerous, right? Like insulating ourselves from the feedback loops for a short period of time, while potentially, you know, you could understand why it'd be useful. It does not get at the heart of the issue. And I think that is why I am sort of most skeptical of the whole operation, because it's it just sort of like adding another, as I think Lauren said at the beginning, it's like just doing climate change to stop climate change. It's like, you know, it's like it's like those when in, was it Australia that when they had over overrun by frogs, they brought in like lizards and then lizards got eat everything. Like maybe that's, that's what a Simpsons reference, maybe. But like that idea, that's what we're doing, right? We're like, oh, we have so many frogs of warming on the, on, on the earth right now. What if we added lizards to eat the frogs and reduce the warming? It's like then we have lizard problems what are we doing here, guys? And like, I think we would realize that issue when we just did this in small scales across the world,
0: and yet we are, here we are. I'd also just mention that the cooling um, effect of solar radiation management would not be even. So more in the tropics and uh, less in the poles. So it's actually messing with the climate system in all sorts of complex ways. There are severe uh, risks in terms of what it might do to the monsoon cycle. So it could cause all sorts of regionally specific problems uh, as, it, as it plays out. And that could be, you know, very dangerous for people in, in certain parts of the world. It really is full of the potential to, to cause new and, and additional problems. And then the, the problem of termination shock, what happens if this, you know, the cooling, if the radiation management system is disrupted or shut down, you have this rebound, extremely rapid heating devastating, that is a, a really serious problem as well.
1: Yeah, it's a bit like like somebody detoxing from a drug addiction, you know, the termination shock, this idea that if we're doing something that's entirely oriented at the symptoms of the problem, as soon as we stop, you get rapid warming happening all at once, um, which could potentially be a lot worse.
4: I suppose the biggest like advocates for this would say like, well, in the meantime, we would be taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's all part of this, this idea that Lauren, I loved that analogy of the credit card debt, where it's like, okay, we're going to give ourselves a bigger credit limit, but we're going to take stuff out of the atmosphere in addition to this. But like the people who would be adding like i think sulfur di- like the sul- the sulfites in the atmosphere are the scariest ones and they're also the ones that are being talked about the most and the people who are doing that are not the same people who would be taking carbon out of the atmosphere it's like a global it would be a global effort and so there like you said there there's no guarantee that that would be done and so in order for this to work it would first of all need to <laughs> Guarantee that, like at the same time that this is happening, we're taking carbon out of the atmosphere, which we we don't know is going to happen based on the history of fossil fuel companies. Thank you for mentioning that, Lauren. but like also, as you mentioned, steph, that like it doesn't solve all of the other issues <laughs> like and as David has mentioned, it probably causes more problems by messing with monsoon seasons and like not stopping the warming at the poles. So why are people talking about this? <laughs>
2: That's a great question. And and honestly, the problem here, and this is why I'm sort of, I'm going to be somewhat a, uh, I'm going to do a bit of prognosticating because I am a depressive sometimes, um, which is that I really think that this is almost certainly going to happen. I, as much as I don't want it to happen, I, I look at the world today and it strikes me as something that at some point over the next 20 to 30 years, warming will be so bad that there will be some countries that will begin to think that they must do this to protect themselves because that is a, like, there is a justice argument to be made about the people in the places that are truly burning up that need to see cooling happen. And that's a very, very, and this is like a example of cooling that can be, like, that we are pretty sure will work and will at least cause some cooling for some amount of time. And, and but, and then the, the flip side of that is that, No one has to answer to the geopolitical questions of what happens if this does mess up our stuff before it does. And so you can get very, very far down the road to doing this. And honestly, one state could do this by themselves. Like if the states decided this wouldn't do this, it would be happening. And like the technology is not difficult and it does not need world cooperation. It just needs one state. And so there's a number of states out there that have the technology right now to do this. And so the chances that one of those countries at some point in the next 20, 30 years experience warming to a level that they're like, the only answer is cooling now, and we're going to do it this way, is very, I think, quite a high likelihood. And you don't have to deal with what happens if we dry out the Amazon, which is 100% one of the possibilities that this could cause, because you don't know if it's going to happen or not. And so the uncertainty allows you to try it. And... But then the trying it can open up a whole bunch of can of worms and we don't really know what it is because the people are talking about it now because it's very bad now and it's likely to get worse over the next 20, 30 years. And so if you're asking how do we keep the most number of people alive in the next 20, 30 years, there's a there's a case to be made here.
3: Yeah. Um, something that I thought was kind of interesting when, when again, you know, you're know you prepping for an episode, you, go, you type geoengineering into Google and what comes up immediately is actually a surprising amount of, um, coverage from the business world and the business community. And what you realize is the people that are most interested in these solutions, um, it's actually, it's like the billionaire class for all intents and purposes. That's where the funding for these projects are coming from. It's actually not really coming from the oil and like oil and gas is really pushing for CCUS, but in terms of like that solar radiation management, a lot of that interest are, are from billionaire philanthropists. Um, and there was actually this, this piece, this might be the second time I'm referencing it in Time Magazine, and it's not that it was a great piece, but it just kind of just seeded some interesting notions and some interesting ideas. And one of the things they were kind of trying to to dig into a little bit, I mean, to the degree that that Time Magazine can dig into like issues of, of, of capitalism and, and and billionaire supremacy, but they were sort of talking about like this is a group of people whose lives have been they've benefited immensely from technocratic solutions. As, as individuals, as business owners, um, and as people who have, I don't know, just realities that are so utterly disconnected from, from the vast majority of, of us living on this planet. It's like they live in this kind of Silicon Valley tech bubble whereby we only have things to gain from, from these technocratic solutions. And they, and they personally have benefited from them. So, of, of course, when they look at the issues caused by climate change, or like climate change as a wicked problem. Tech seems like the natural solution there. So I genuinely think when you've got like George Soros and Bill Gates wanting to invest billions of dollars in these solutions, I don't think it's because they're sitting in their offices twiddling their thumbs being like, and this will further lock us into systems of warming and prop up the oil and gas industry. I think they genuinely see these solutions as kind of like silver bullet solutions because they don't, really understand nor does it behoove them to understand that actually <laughs> these these systems are so wildly complicated that we can never fully understand the the effects on the on the planet of something like of like cloud seeding, um, and and also it doesn't benefit them to to think more so about like racial dynamics and class dynamics and issues of actual climate justice. And the phrase that I've heard used in reference to to geoengineering is like, who holds the thermostat? Who gets to make these decisions? Is it Bill Gates in i don't know wherever he lives all of his million homes in like Seattle or whatever does he get to hold the thermostat does he get to decide how and when we we implement these solutions or should it be the people who are feeling the the impacts most acutely so, so i think that's i think that's sort of the thing it's like who's uh, we're we're seeing a lot of interest in geoengineering from this specifically oligarchic class because if the world only consisted of people up in that upper echelon, yeah, sure, they would kind of benefit from it, but but that's not actually the reality of, of of these complex systems.
1: So we've talked a lot so far about like sulfate aerosols, this idea that you sort of shoot sulfates up into the atmosphere um, to mimic volcanic eruptions, um, and that that kind of can have some cooling effects in the same way that volcanic eruptions work. And um, there are a couple of other big ideas in geoengineering that I'd like to dig into. And one of them is ocean iron fertilization, which as I understand it is this kind of idea that you sprinkle some iron into the ocean and that creates phytoplankton blooms, which is good because phytoplankton take up CO2 when they photosynthesize. Did I get that right? <laughs> and, and also, what are your thoughts on that approach?
2: I, I, that sounds right. I it's again it kind of, I think it's one of the ones that's further down the list of uh, people looking at it, so I think it's a little bit less in the know. Um, I mean, if I had to rank geoengineering projects, uh, which I don't want to do, but if I had to, I would say anyone that at least is trying to remove carbon is a better one than ones that are trying to do other things. <laughs> Even at like all of the ways that the other ones are problematic, like at least trying to remove carbon is doing the the base thing. and honestly, the more natural ways to reduce carb- to, to pull carbon also probably good. You know the ability to pull in carbon using plants and natural fibers or soil, for example, that's the, the really big one that that people talk about is a dramatically better option than trying to just like try a third thing that then just creates a sort of, you know, chasing the tail of what could go wrong next. And so I, I feel better about, about it that way. At the same time, I'd have to know more like e- ocean ecosystems. We don't even understand all the animals that live in the ocean. So like, who knows what we'd be doing?
4: We're just seeing pictures of giant squids for the very first time. <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly. Yeah, for a long time, I, I would say that my favorite uh, apocalypse scenario was the jellyfish apocalypse. Which uh, is because jellyfish are one of the few animals that can survive in very acidic oceans. So I just thought the idea of this, like us turning oceans into just all jellyfish, would be a very fitting way to go down. But yeah, I mean that's sort of my take. It's like like it's removing carbon, so that's good. It's using plants, which is probably better. But there's still so much we don't know, and that's the reality for all these projects, right?
1: Yeah, it's true. One risk that I read about for this one is that it could actually create more ocean dead zones, um, which would be bad. Don't want to kill all the fish.
3: Yeah, that's like not a vibe, generally
1: <laughs> speaking. What about cloud seeding? Uh, what is that?
3: Oh my god, I feel like all of all of the conspiracy theorists here is just like perked up.
1: And they're like, oh my god, cloud
3: seeding. Let me at it. Um, made I made the mistake of asking somebody this summer, being like, hey man, so like, what are chemtrails? Um, and, it, and it's and it's now all he ever wants to talk to me about. Um, so cloud seeding is. I, I don't actually remember the substance because I don't whether it's um, sulfur dioxide or not. But basically, I think, generally speaking, the idea is that okay, so there's like cloud seeding and cloud brightening, and I've heard both of those terms, and I don't know if they're totally interchangeable. But the one I've heard about more recently is cloud brightening, essentially to increase the the albedo of cloud coverage across the planet. So it would be it would be reflecting solar radiation outward back into space before it even like had time to filter down to down to the Mm -hmm. ground what i think is interesting is that when i was reading up on it the context people were suggesting it be used within this was like george soros like a world economic forum thing was like this is the solution and it was cloud brightening but specifically on the poles in order to to reduce warming on the poles which it's like okay cool i get that but also as they currently exist the poles are like Th- they have more albedo like they have a higher albedo than anywhere else on the planet because like it's literally just like shiny white reflective material so it was like why why would we concentrate it there but like sure whatever i'm not I'm not the engineer but essentially that's that's what I understand kind of cloud seeding cloud brightening to be it's that you get a plane that flies up into the air intentionally shoots out uh, some sort of like could be seed as pollution for lack of a better word um, that would then diffuse and and refract. And I talked about conspiracy theorists because yeah, if you were to google either cloud seeding or chemtrails, it's it's there's a certain subset of the population that is concerned that the substances that are coming out of the back of planes, it's like weather control and it's the government.
2: The other version that that is often talked about is the one using ships. And so I guess at some point they noticed that there were tons of ship particles like that you know ships were using or creating their own basically like if the, someone basically looked at a map and was like, what are all those lines through the, uh, through the ocean? And it was these ships that were re- driving that were then you know, releasing, you know, their, their own gases. And then they did some studies and apparently the, you can use ocean water. Like you can just basically use ocean water to, to create this plumage. And so the idea was sort of my understanding. One idea is like to just add this ocean water spray to all ships everywhere. Um, just to increase the amount of cloud cover. Now, problems with that is that it doesn't. They don't think it'd be nearly as global. So it would be much. But they don't know how much of an effect it would have globally to be more local in, in in ways that are reflecting um, things. And then that, of course, that that really messes up weather patterns. Like it's one thing to do something globally and have like the whole world experiencing less or more radiation, but like to have to start creating like patches of cold. In the middle of oceans that are already uniquely hot because of climate change, could create some other weather weather patterns that we don't even really know about.
1: Yeah, and I think um, there's a like there's a study in, Austra- or in Australia right now that's trying to do it on sort of like a small scale that like spraying salt water basically approach. And the idea is basically you can stop uh, chlor- coral bleaching, but I think it's sort of very early days in terms of the difference between cloud brightening and cloud seeding. As I understand it, cloud brightening is sort of about changing the way that clouds work. Um, and Lauren, I think you offered a great description of that. I think cloud seeding, and I think this is more of like a sci-fi concept still, it's not really in the workability stage, but the idea is you can actually like create clouds and, and change where they exist. And I don't really know how that works beyond that it involves reflective mirrors in space in some way. <laughs> so-
2: I'm glad we got to space mirrors eventually. I was, okay. like, if, 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 can't have, can't at least briefly mention the space mirrors. You know, we got to get there.
1: Got to get space mirrors in. Are there any other like notable versions of geoengineering that we want to highlight before we talk sort of more about them in general?
3: Steph, do you remember the one that we talked about a couple months ago on the show where it was like some guy just like kind of going rogue and releasing some sort of substance into the ocean? It might've been in like the Pacific Northwest or something like that. I do not remember literally, I don't remember a single detail.
2: Yeah, it was a private company called Something Sunsets, and they were selling cooling credits to people because their idea was that they would, which is truly the worst. Like there is nothing worse than this idea being a thing that private enterprises try to do. But basically, yeah, it was this. It, but I believe the idea was still the sulfur in the atmosphere. I think that was what they re- were going to do in terms of how they were going to make the cooling. But it was yeah, a private entity selling cooling credits just so people like. Can you imagine the idea where I could privately just pay someone to shoot sulfur into the atmosphere and like be like, that's cool, and then I could feel better about myself for for some reason doing this? Like every part of this is bad.
1: Wow, it's both the worst possible way to deploy this technology, and also I think inevitably how we're going to do it. Uh, so that's great. Uh, the one that I had heard about that I think is kind of weird, uh, is actually creating synthetic trees, uh, which so far costs more than $500 per ton of carbon removed, which is, I have to imagine just so much more expensive than planting a real tree, but.
2: <laughs> or, or even just like direct air capture right now is sitting at, I think $200 a ton. So like That seems to be bonkers. But that doesn't break. The last set of options, honestly, would be what you would put into this general understanding of just really heavy investment of natural solutions, right? Like you could imagine a massive worldwide shift towards, say, more sustainable agriculture that tried to trap a ton of carbon in the soil, which is something we almost have to do no matter what. But like you could imagine that at a global scale being some type of geoengineering just because of how much carbon it would pull out of the atmosphere if you really committed to it. And so you could imagine that or the tree planting, or tree planting honestly is actually almost certainly less good. Like it almost only will, will not work in the same way that some of the soil stuff will. So like that sort of thing, I think regenerative agriculture stuff uh, would be the one that I think would be the last sort of larger one, but it's, doesn't to me it's not exactly the same, but it would still fall under it, I think.
4: I love the idea of fake trees. And I see the appeal. Like, I don't love it. Obviously, I would prefer real trees. But I see the appeal, especially for like the logging industry. Like, how how long does it take for a tree? Like, we know that it takes many, many years for a tree to be big enough and old enough to be pulling more carbon out of the air than like, well, to be pulling out enough for it to be like to matter. Whereas like a Fake tree uh, can pull, you know, tons of carbon out of the air right away. And I'm sure that it is like, just like with um, solar panels, right? Like the the more we put them out, the cheaper they will become.
1: Kyla, are you writing a sequel to the Lorax right now? That's what's (laughs) happening here? (laughs) It's just,
4: you know, if you can replace the Truffula trees with... with tech trees, then of course we can keep cutting down all the Truffula trees.
3: (laughs) So I guess to push back on the faux tree scenario, yes, maybe manufacturing a tree takes less time than waiting for a sequoia to grow for 750 years. But what doesn't take (laughs) any time is just not cutting the trees down to begin with. Um, The weekend we're recording this, we're recording this on the on the twenty-sixth of February. And actually just yesterday there was a huge, huge, huge march in in BC. But basically like there's still a huge push, at least in 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 pockets around the world, to to preserve old growth forest because it still does exist and it's still such an awesome carbon sequestration tool. Uh, I hate referring to a whole to a whole biosphere as a tool, but like, but really it's like healthy Robust, biodiverse forests are still so effective, um, and and are not just from a climate standpoint, but from from an environmental standpoint in general. When we talk about these these nature based solutions, there's there's oftentimes a concern that's brought up by indigenous communities because so often when the world of like environment and conservation. Has has turned to nature based solutions, whether it be from a climate standpoint, or like if you go back like two hundred years to like the devout like the founding of national parks and and conservation spaces. What that ultimately ends up looking like a lot of the time are land grabs of of spaces that indigenous peoples occupy and continue to occupy and and, and have occupied. So it's it's figuring out a way to implement these quote unquote nature based solutions to climate change, which are in 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 essence kind of a version of geoengineering, but in 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 some ways kind of just allowing spaces to rewild but doing so in a way that doesn't result in further marginalization of folks who who already live on and and are in good relation with those territories and it doesn't mean it's impossible it just means it's it it needs to be done carefully and and how we can also carry out these Processes without um, something we've talked about on the show for a, like a couple weeks in a row now it seems, or at least a few episodes over the last few months, are um, kind of like fraudulent carbon capture schemes that are based on poor forest accounting and and making sure that when we are like, how do we go about investing in these again in these nature based solutions in a way that isn't fraudulent, in a way that isn't allowing ourselves to feel better about our our, our ongoing polluting practices, if that makes sense. Anyway, lots of concerns, but but yes, I generally speaking agree that, that we should be turning towards things like preserving forest.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there are tons of other reasons to support land back, but I think it's worth noting that land back is one of the most effective strategies to support conservation also. So I think that's going to be a big part of the conversation in the future. I
4: love all of those points, and I think I would certainly rather see our cities turned into forests, <laughs> you know, like I love the idea of like rewilding a city or just putting trees on the roof of buildings like reduces the heat of a city. Who knows, you know, like do all of those things. But I actually genuinely like I know I was making fun of it earlier. And obviously, like if this was the only solution we were using, fake trees is like insane because it there's no way an ecosystem could work with a tree that we have manufactured, But I like them as a as a tool that we can use with other solutions. So like, if every block had one of these trees and then also a ton of like real trees that were saplings that were growing, then like i'm I'm for that. I'm for that. I'm not against I'm not against manufactured trees unless they're replacing real trees and we're using them as an excuse to keep logging old growth forests.
1: I don't know how the accounting would come down on that, though, because, I mean, I don't know what these synthetic trees are being made of, but if you have to, like, strip mine in order to produce the materials that make these synthetic trees, that, like, the environmental calculus is almost certainly going to be worse.
4: Oh, yeah, like a Tesla, like an electric car. Yeah, that's a really good point.
3: Well, and, and I think even the fact that, like, they're being referred to as synthetic trees instead of just, like, I don't know, carbon sequestration fans like 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 lit- literally a rose by any other name would smell a sweet kind of thing like it's like the fact that we're that we're professing to call them trees when 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 like you said kyla like these Synthetic structures would in no way interact with, with an environment in a way that replicates the way a tree interacts with, with an environment and the degree to which it's just like so intensely integrated within the ecosystem and the habitat it provides and the way in which it provides support and nutrients to the trees and the, and, and the various f- like flora and fauna around it. Like I think even just calling them synthetic trees is, is I don't know, hubristic. And, and, and indicates that they could be taking us down yet another perilous path where, where we think we're capable of, like, I don't know, the way in which we, we think planting 2 billion trees is the same as reforesting, when it's not. <laughs> There's way more that goes into a healthy, biodiverse forest than just like, I don't know, a couple thousand jack pine.
1: Geoengineering, does it work in general? What parts do you think work best? What role does it have in climate action?
0: Okay, so setting aside, I think regenerative agriculture and also things that can be done to encourage rewilding forests and so on. Yes, those things are you know are very are, are very important. Um, but I think the, the thing that really stands out in my mind uh, for the same reasons that Stefan was saying earlier is the the future with solar radiation management. I just think that there, this is very concerning because it is for, for, from the perspective, uh, as has been said, of Certain kinds of uh, billionaires who are trying to think about the medium and longer term rather than simply immediately short term profits. Right. Most capitalists spend most of their time just thinking about the next quarter uh, or some very short term things But people who are trying to think from but from that social location about the longer term. And governments—they're similarly oriented. This looks like a really good idea, right? I mean, if you think that people can see what the projections are for future heating, uh, and so then, hey, we can actually uh, find a technological fix that doesn't require us to really change things in in any dramatic way. Or they could—they they wouldn't say it that way, right? It could be presented as, you know, this will buy us the time that we need in order to do certain things, but it it doesn't present a challenge to fossil capital. And so I think that's why it's, it's so appealing and it's low cost from the, in the big picture, like just dollars, right? It does not require the same kind of expenditures and, and construction that were required to you know build a whole new energy system and change transportation and, and construction of dwellings and all sorts of things like that. So I think that we're likely to see a political push, which will be preceded by more of an attempt to soften people up for it, right? To talk about it in a way that makes it seem benevolent and tries to diminish the concerns. And so I think we need to be educating ourselves about it in order to start challenging it before the, the push really begins.
2: Yeah, I think that's maybe the most key part because to me, the it's also way easier, right? Like it's technically very hard to do all the things we need to do to remove, uh, to reduce, remove carbon from our daily lives. And it is a ton of construction. It's a ton of work. And we'll, that work has all of the problems we, we experience when trying to do literally anything these days. And so that is going to take time and be very hard. Whereas 15, 20 jets flying around the earth forever, putting us off in the atmosphere, is truly something that they could probably pull off within a year if they really wanted to. And then the problem of that I mentioned earlier of how much easier... Not having to make the defensive case as to all the ways it could go wrong before doing it because people are dying now is also really, really hard to push back on because you're like, look at all these people who are dying in heat waves. Don't you care about them? It, it's very tough to be like, well, we don't know if it's working X, Y, Z, Z. But I think the part that we have to come back to, the core argument here, has to be to go back to Lauren's point about who is funding this and why it's going to happen. Because ultimately, almost no version of this will not be some form of extreme colonialism. The only countries that can do this are the wealthy countries or the, or the, and the powerful countries. And therefore, the only countries that will, and, and the people who are doing research on it, and the people who own the satellites to know what's happening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera is going to be the, the, the few powerful countries that have the planes and the capacity to do this. And that fact alone should be like, I don't think you're going to get 180 countries on board to do this because I think a lot of them will be very rightly concerned about how it will impact everything, you know, the oceans and everything else like that. But you could easily see one country on the security council, for example, that can veto everything just deciding to do it because they want to. And the rest of the world has to live with their consequences. And that I think is the, fundamental problem because you're going to get this argument from fr- from a what could be considered a justice advocate lens of don't you care about people dying in heat waves now but you're solving that problem very much with a colonial mindset of well we've we can fix this with technology again which is the thing that has got us to this problem in the first place
3: i would just like argue that like like you said like you're going to get people pulling out that justice card to try to justify this and and i think it's a disingenuous use of the of justice because it's 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 almost the same as like when when people who are proponents of oil and gas in in north america are like oh but it's 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 more ethical oil and gas it's like that's that's not actually that argument doesn't really hold water because yeah in my mind The climate crisis and remedying the issues at hand here is about so much more than just carbon accounting and about so much more than just either getting our emissions down or buying ourselves more runway so we can pollute more. It's about what kind of world do we want to live in? And it's not so much that we have an opportunity to change the world, but like we have an imperative to change the way that we operate in, in our communities and with each other and the ways in which we, we go about our lives and our, and our relations with other humans and non-human animals and, and, and the land and the water. Like it's, this is such a band aid solution in every sense of the term. And I understand that the argument can be made that we need to pull on a wide variety of solutions. There's like that, like, there's like an, an ecosystem of solutions that we need to be leveraging here. But this is a false solution this actually isn't going to win us much ground at all and it's and it's not going to result in the types of positive transformation that we want to and need to see if we're going to build the kind of like functioning society that works for more than just the jeff bezos's that that inhabit this planet
0: it's 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 a, it's a narrow technical quote unquote fix and i think we've to flag again what kind of a fix is it that creates other problems at the same time other ecological problems and just does not address any of the the root causes. So, of course, that requires thinking about these problems in a different way than the way that they're framed most often, right? In that narrow carbon accounting way of of thinking. But it's so it's our challenge to try to get people to think ecologically about the ecological crisis.
1: And so, Lauren, you you had mentioned sort of really taking indigenous rights seriously. Wondering if if folks can sort of identify some other solutions that you think really are promising. Um, in contrast to geoengineering?
2: I mean, the one for me I I mentioned before is, is regenerative agriculture. Like I think that, the combination of, of focusing on that and supporting people to do that because it's expensive. It's not like this is the cheapest option, right? And, and it's one that, especially as food prices are rising, people gonna be like, oh man, you make my food even more expensive? And the answer has, has to be, well, yes, but we will give you more money so you can afford it. Um, and there've been, you know, after four or five years, you, you actually get a point where it can be relatively on parity. But like there, the, the, our egg culture system has so many other problems that you know, like we didn't we we haven't even talked about our nitrogen imbalance that we've done you want to talk, if you want to think about our problems as ecosystems that are out of whack the nitrogen cycle is w- even more out of whack than the climate cycle like the nit- we we are pumping in way 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 too much nitrogen into into things and we're losing it out of soil it's like a i could spiral about this for too long so we won't bother but i i think that to me it's the biggest opportunity to sort of again bring us back to a more natural state of being able to live within our means and and supporting more and more farmers to be able to do that and then also we have to have less beef straight up beef is such a massive and again i'm not saying none i don't want to like i'm not saying that there aren't important places for people's cultures and stuff like that for for beef consumption but like it is such a huge draw and it's taking up so much land that could be going to food and it's the worst thing for climate change and so like, to me, I think focusing in on agriculture and really investing in that across the world would be a, a pretty good significant step forward that would do more than just one thing, right? It's not just removing emissions, it's not just re- producing heat from solar, it is tackling all these other intertwined challenges that we have right now.
4: I love that answer. I love that answer so much. And I mean, we could go into the agricultural system and like the just food waste. And like, there's so many, it's just turtles all the way down on that one. So I love that. And I would also point people to my favorite movie of all time, 2040, uh, for the seaweed farming. Kristen's laughing at me, but it's so good. And so like, I wanted to just pitch like, I love the seaweed farms. I think they're a great I great I think they're great like obviously you know apart from agriculture seaweed farms and the community of care that's built up around solar panels on people's roofs and and the idea of having a community like honeycomb where we're all powering each other instead of drawing power from a central source. So more more like community care in the way we distribute like power, not just the like actual power that powers our homes, but like the power of who gets to decide what happens and
0: where. And you know, I think urban transportation, right? Anything that can be done to build up quality public transit is going to have all sorts of positive effects. I mean, it's even I'm not advocating, you know, Diesel buses, but diesel buses are still better than cars. And, um, but certainly trying to, uh, to, to, you know, push for all sorts of, of uh, public tr- transit, uh, electrified and so on. And if, you know, in the spirit of some of the things that were being said earlier, it's like if money's going to be spent, there's also geo, geothermal, right? Um, not nearly enough being done to uh, move towards just maximizing geothermal as a, as a power source and all sorts of potential there. Totally in agreement with, with with
3: what's been said so far. Um, I take the transit concept one step farther. Not only um, transit within within cities and within urban spaces, but figuring out, especially I don't know, all of our podcasts are somewhat within the Canadian so called Canadian context because that's where we all record. It's, that's where we all live is within that colonial border. Um, so at the within the Canadian context, it's like yeah, it's it's free, efficient, fast plentiful transit systems within within our communities, but then also figuring out that that sort of like a network of, the, of those transit systems across the country, we need to be able to get from especially as like, I don't know, somebody who lives in like the Windsor to Montreal corridor, it's like, that needs to be that, like, we need rapid rail, basically. And we need to have it going all the time. And we need to provide alternatives for flights and alternatives for 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 single passenger vehicles or, or, or personal passenger vehicles. Overhauling and totally rethinking those transit systems and our approach to to moving people. The other one that's of course coming to mind because it's just like all over Twitter with misunderstanding is, for lack of a better term, a fifteen minute city, um, a city in which you can like happily inhabit your space and be in community with your neighbors in a way that is not only pleasurable but also like deeply functional and doesn't require that you drive forty five minutes away to hit up the big box store when you're in need of groceries or whatever. So rethinking the way our, our, our urban spaces and our, and our communities are, are laid out and function. Um, and then finally kind of going back to the indigenous sovereignty and, and, and rights holder thing. It's like, and, and actually it does tie into the geoengineering conversation. It's, it's this notion of land back and it's that we need to increasingly seed ground and, and turn it back over both land and water to, to indigenous peoples, not only in so-called Canada, but, but all over the world because like we know, and it's, it's it's a statistic people cite all the time, but like 80% of the world's biodiversity resides within lands that are overseen and managed by by indigenous communities and indigenous people. So like that that right there is like, it's a no-brainer.
1: Given that we have all of these other solutions that are less problematic, arguably cheaper, and do a better job of solving the underlying problems, what are some sort of like, like, what do you think about our, I don't know if politics is the right word, but like the way that we interact as people needs to change in order to get us to that kind of vision?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that's central to this whole conversation, right? Because I think that the the solar radiation management specifically is a obvious continuation of our belief that we can technocratic away, our way out of these problems. And that is why it is so appealing, I think, to people, because it is, in some ways, less logistically challenging. It's only doing one new thing instead of 50,000 things. And our brains like that. Our brains like the idea of just doing one thing instead of trying to figure out all of the the other parts, interpretive parts. But if anything, what the world should have taught us is that we need to think in ecosystems and in these like larger understanding all the players and stuff like that. Like the binary thinking of the colonial concept is exactly what has got us to the point we are now. And so trying to continue that thinking is where, where you get celebration management being such a, such a hot topic. And so the idea um, shifting to community power and, and sort of more sc- small scale things, all of this wave thinking of like, okay, how do we create more communities of care And communities that can be locally uh, sustainable within themselves is, to me, the, the number one shift in our thinking. Like, we have to start asking ourselves, how do we keep as much of our impact as locally as possible and then expand from there? And and I think that shift of f- shifting from like this very, very individualistic mindset, which we have right now, in which you can imagine one person heroically flying in the atmosphere and spraying things over to a, no, no, no. If we're trying to change an ecosystem or trying to protect the ecosystem, you need every member of the ecosystem to play a part. And that's why the solutions that we sort of putting forward end up becoming more complicated because there's millions and millions and billions of people out there. But also it would be the, centering change that would actually address all the other problems instead of just one more band-aid. And so I think that's it for me. It's a shift from the sort of individual neoliberal mindset to a community, more caring mindset has to be the main shift in my brain, at least, to get you there.
4: I think what um, that really pulls down to is the idea of degrowth, which I'm sure we'll do like a whole episode on eventually. But the idea that Nobody has time right now to care about their communities. I don't have time to meet my neighbors because I'm working 40 hours a week at a place that's away from my home. So it's like, you know, 30 minutes there, 30 minutes back. That's an hour a day. So, like, you're too tired to go to protests. You're too tired to call your MP. You're too tired to meet your neighbors. You're too tired to go next door and ask if you can borrow a lawnmower. So instead you just go buy a lawnmower, right? So what I think is like the really big solution that we could have here is the idea of degrowth. We should all be working two days a week and those two days a week that we are working at should be in positions that are not focusing on Growth of capital, right? They should be. They should be like the two days that I'm working. I'm. I'm the garbage man or whatever job I decide to take, right? And so, what we really need is redistribution of wealth and a UBI, <laughs> so that people can have the time to care for each other. I
0: mean, that yeah brings up a whole bunch of other questions <laughs> that I won't get into. But I, just circle back to um, what Stefan was saying. I think the the question of how do we begin to get more of that way of thinking is worth thinking about, right? Um, Because I don't think it's going to be like a conversion experience where it just happens. I think it it can happen. I mean, already, of course, it's happening in in places, but the more we can have people engaged in collective action, the more that coming together in cooperative ways to respond to the problems in people's lives creates the shifts in thinking and the potential for shifts in thinking, right? I think that in in general, that the action comes first, Um, people start acting because of circumstances they find themselves in before that they have you know have a shift of mindset or before they um, you know maybe know the full implications of what they're doing but once people are in motion and doing things collectively then there's this all sorts of potential for for dialogue and for people having different experiences that open them up to thinking about the world in in new ways and so you know i think that's one source of hope to think about to think about that that we don't need people to start having a fully complex ecological understanding (laughs) before they take action, right? Uh, Anything that we can do to encourage people to take collective action, you know, whether it's, it could be responding to your, if you're a unionized worker and you're uh, trying to push your employer to actually pay people more because of the cost of living or because you're trying to take action in your community uh, around some kind of a, a road issue or whatever it might be, right? I think that is just so important, and we can't stress enough the importance of of that kind of collective action. There are, of course, lots of obstacles to it, but um, I just think it's it's so fundamental to making any kind of the change that we've been talking about.
1: And I wonder, Lauren, throughout this episode, you've talked about like um, redistribution, and I think not only from a sort of within countries perspective, but also globally. So I'm wondering if there's if there's anything that you'd want to add, sort of on on that idea at this point in the episode?
3: It's a good question. It's a big question. I feel like there's, there's something here and it's a thread that I'm not going to be able to fully grasp, but I would just, so initially, because I, I don't, I'm not eloquent enough and arid enough to, to express it adequately, but um, for folks who might not be familiar with concepts of things like, I don't know. Open borders and border imperialism and the ways in which that those like colonial structures have 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 kind of been at the root cause of a, of a lot of the damage we now find ourselves having to contend with. check out the writing of Harshawalia They're an incredible thinker. They have a few really influential books one of their most I think their most recent one is called Border and Rule the where they sort of really really interrogate these colonial borders and, and the harms that they've inflicted upon people, not just in the global South, but, but all over the world and and how they've kind of driven us to this, to the situation we find ourselves in today. But, but yeah, I think there's, there's a conversation that is ongoing. It's not that it's not happening. It's been happening for, for ever now. Um, but is increasingly happening in sort of more, um, settler colonizer spaces, which I think is, is, is uplifting is that, Yeah, we need to be redistributing power. And like you said, or or like, um, like Kyla said, like, like other people have said, wealth and power, um, not just along lines of taking money away from the billionaire class, which is something we know we need to do, we should abolish the fact of billionaires in general. But but what does it mean to to turn power back over to previously colonized peoples, back to the global south, back to those who who are experiencing these impacts most acutely and have done so little to, to contribute to the problem? And, and not only have they done so little to contribute to the problem, but operated within systems of thinking and being that for for millennia were in symbiosis with the land that they that they existed within and, and existed on. And and there's so much knowledge and so much science really that we should be and could be drawing from in order to develop the the practical solutions that we're that we're gonna need to employ if we're gonna effectively combat not just climate change as it currently exists, but but these ongoing intersecting ecological crises that we face all the time. It's like, yeah, coming to understand indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous ways of being as being as legitimate, if not more so, than those that we push out Within like academia and modern capitalism, I think is is really key. Does that sort of get to what you were hoping to talk about?
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't really know what I was <laughs> hoping to hear, so but but that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that um, you know all three of you have given different, but I think really valuable ways of thinking about the problem that isn't just shooting sulfur into the atmosphere. And I think I really liked uh, Steph your your idea of ecosystem thinking. And I think we can sort of take all all three of your perspectives and even more. And if we apply an ecosystems approach, we can do it all at once. So that's really great.